Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. I have two purposes for my ongoing series on peace building. The first is to enable you to be aware of a vast number of people actively involved in peace building and peacemaking from a great pluralism of faiths and worldviews, and to enable you to learn how each of these peace builders and makers uses resources from his or her own tradition as a basis for his or her efforts. The second is to provide you with resources that you can use in your efforts and interest in peacebuilding and peacemaking. Initially, I used the term peacemaking because it was the term Glenn Stassen used in his book, Just Peacemaking, and is the term used by Irfan Omar and Michael Dufay in their book, which inspired this series, Peacemaking and the Challenge of Violence in World Religions. However, I like the distinctions Rabbi Amy Eilberg makes in her book, From Enemy to Friend, when she says, I generally use the term peacebuilding in this work as is becoming the norm in the field of conflict studies to describe the work of ordinary people in addressing conflict in their daily lives and in the world. This is to be distinguished from peacemaking, which is the work of diplomats in creating international agreements, and peacekeeping, the work of military forces sent to prevent violence in conflict zones. Consequently, I'm changing mostly to using peacebuilding when I seek to focus primarily on the work you and I can do in our daily lives. Thus far, I have spoken with Dr. Tink Tinker from the Osage Nation of American Indians and Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Crimer. Today, I want to focus on my own heritage. Broadly, that is Christianity, but more specifically, it is that version of Christianity called Baptist. My guest today is Ken Sehested. Ken's entire career has been starting and sustaining four faith-based organizations. Seeds Magazine, focused on world hunger and food insecurity. Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America. Circle of Mercy, a new church in Asheville, North Carolina. And PrayerAndPolitics.org, an online journal at the intersection of spiritual formation and prophetic action. An award-winning author and an international activist, Ken is the author of several books, including two books of poetry, In the Land of the Living, Prayers, Personal and Public, and In the Land of the Willing, Litanies, Prayers, Poems, and Benedictions, along with Peace Primer 2, Quotes from Jewish, Christian, and Islamic Scripture and Tradition, with Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, and Muslim Peace Fellowship founder, Rabia Terry Harris. Ken writes, In my lifetime, I have had only two original thoughts. First, God is more taken with the agony of the earth than with the ecstasy of heaven. Second, there's no getting right with God. There's only getting soaked. These two thoughts represent the twin towers of faith in the way of Jesus. The first indicates the venue of God's passion, healing the rupture between heaven and earth, leaning toward that day when hope and history align, when a new heaven and a new earth will unfold. The second 
represents the needed spiritual formation required to sustain hope in the midst of history's calamity. Ken is here to share with us his wisdom and to tell us stories of his piecework. Welcome, Ken. Thank you for being with me this evening. Happy to. Uh, You have for a long time uh, been involved in peace work Mm. uh, and peacemaking, peace building. Uh, So why don't you tell us your own story, your own journey uh, into that being a calling on your life? Sure. Yeah, it's um, it is a significant for me. Um, I was raised in traditional pietistic revivalist Southern Baptist tradition. Um, households and church. We were not fundamentalists. That's what a lot of journalists don't know today, the difference between fundamentalist and revivalist pietist tradition. Um, But at age 14, I have what I years later realized was a mystical experience. Uh, the, The elements of that experience conform to all the uh, traditional uh, notes that um, scholars of mysticism um, uh, agree on. and But at the time, so I went to, you know, obviously talk to my parents, talk to, went to and talked to my pastor. Uh, he had no language to help me. He just sent, said, well, you must be called to be, to be a preacher. So I said, okay, I'm going to be a preacher. And I actually ended up being part of a youth revival team uh, for about a year and a half um, traveling church to church, doing things, um, uh, then ended up, um, getting, a some several football scholarship offers and went to Baylor because at the time, um, uh, I had my life planned out and, you know, I was going to graduate from Baylor, go to Southwestern seminary in in Fort Worth and, um, then be ready to take over, um, Billy Graham's place as soon as he retired. That's so that was my, that was my trajectory. Uh, You know, going to college like uh, everyone does, things, um, uh, accretions begin to loosen (laughs) and you get away from home, you get exposed to a much wider variety of uh, insights and perceptions and opinions. And so I, I actually was pleased that I uh, had this chance to stop doing these youth revivals because Somewhere in there, I realized what I was doing was manipulate, manipulating people. Uh, I became very aware of um, uh, what was going on. I was very unsettled. But, of course, I thought I was uh, maybe becoming a, a heretic. Um, um, after a Southern Baptist still have, I think, a, a program called uh, Summer Missions, where college students uh, are placed in various places to work with with churches for 10 weeks in the summer. And I got placed in a congregation on Long Island, New York. And that was like going to Mars for me. That's just how um, profoundly different. I'd you know, never even traveled out of the South um, and was doing things I knew I didn't believe in, but I didn't know why. And the pastor I was working with I knew um, was not safe to talk to about that. Um, so I kept it to myself or I wrote it in journals. And I got back to Baylor, gave up my football scholarship, um, began looking around for universities in the Northeast. New York University had a junior year program, which just seemed perfect. I'll go up there for a year and then come back and graduate from Baylor. But 
midway through the first semester, I knew there's no chance I was going to come home. I was, I was free. There was, um, uh, I just opened, opened up all the release channels, um, uh, and trying to figure out what was this thing called faith. And, you know, I, I made the decision after graduating from NYU to go to seminary. It wasn't because I wanted to train to be a pastor. It was just the God question wouldn't go away. So uh, my wife and I both went to Union. We married just as I graduated from college. Um, and that's where the theological kicking and streaming um, uh, was not only allowed, it was actually kind of welcomed in Union's environment. Um, and midway through that time, I, one, I discovered the roots of my um, Anabaptist history uh, through uh, English Baptist and U.S. Baptist. Uh, which I had no idea of. Um, and then um, studying with people like James Cone uh, had profound influence on my life in terms of uh, liberationist themes. Um, finished Union. Um, my wife and I moved to Atlanta just because we could live in her parents' basement. Found a variety of just odd jobs to get by on. And then I just happened to be in a congregation where... Uh, a new publication called Seeds Magazine was in the process of forming, focused on world hunger issues and Christian responsibility. So I joined that clique, and within several months, we made the decision to turn this into full-time vocation, uh, to start a monthly magazine and educational ministry. So uh, that was a major turning point to give far more attention to Scripture and the issue of poverty and hunger. Um, so I spent six years doing that. And then the Baptist Peace Fellowship uh, organizing meeting came along. I ended up um, going to it, even though I wasn't one of the original invitees, and became so uh, taken with what they were talking about, particularly because their sense of the connection between justice and peacemaking, that those two things cannot be negotiated separately. Uh, and uh, if Baptists had saints, Martin Luther King Jr. would be the patron saint in the Baptist Peace Fellowship. I had learned just enough about fundraise, fundraising um, uh, to realize that uh, this will work. We can find the money to do this. So I wrote up a plan what I wanted to do if the new board of this organization w would allow me to. And they end up saying, well, what do we have to lose? <laughs> Let him try. And that um, started an 18-year commitment um, that ended in 2001. That's when uh, my wife and I and uh, another colleague here started Circle of Mercy Congregation. Uh, so my focus went from, you know, global to local, um, though my organizing vision for both justice and peace work um, really centered around local congregations, getting uh, uh, these commitments rooted in local communities of people practicing their faith and not just on what's happening in Washington or at the United Nations or your state capital or your county capital. Um, so th there was a, there's a symmetry to that, even though the scope of what I was doing narrowed significantly. And, and it was very, I, I enjoyed that uh, work very much. And I'm still active in the congregation just as a layperson. So there's a thumbnail sketch. From your website, 
it talks about that the Baptist Peace Fellowship was originally founded in 1939. Yes. Uh, I actually think it's 40. Um, I think that may be a mistake. Well, it was the original group. It was basically an American Baptist Peace Fellowship. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, the American Baptists used to be called Northern Baptists. They changed their name to American Baptists in 57 or 8. It was, um, so that body and the Southern Baptists are the folks who split in 1845 over the issue of slavery. So the American Baptists uh, had a peace fellowship that was a pacifist fellowship, and it was founded uh, by pac pacifist pastors who knew that with World War II coming, they would suffer greatly because of their convictions. Harry Emerson Fosdick was at Riverside Church, was one of the founding members. Um, and they had a fellowship of a marginal life, no, never any staff, um, uh, but they um, would meet it at the, um, that body's uh, biennial convention meeting uh, every couple of years. And they had a newsletter. And then in the uh, 80s, they started sponsoring some trips to the Soviet Union, what was in the Soviet Union, uh, to visit Baptist congregations there. Um, few people know that uh, Baptists in the Soviet, what was then the Soviet Union, were the second largest confessional tradition in the Soviet Union, other than the Orthodox. So mm -hmm. making those um, connections uh, to foster citizen-to-citizen -citizen, um, diplomacy um, in hopes of uh, mediating the, uh, the feverish uh, nuclear war threat at the time. In one of those trips, they invited a group of Southern Baptists uh, to go along with them. Uh, in 1980, a group at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville founded a, a newsletter called Baptist Peacemaker and started publishing, circulating it for free. Um, and so some of those folk publishing that newsletter went on this trip to the Soviet Union. And while they were, this was 83 and while they were there, they got to talking about how come we don't know each other? <laughs> because most most of the Southerners didn't know the Northerners and vice versa. So they began daydreaming. What what, what can we how can we build a, a communication link um, so that we can share, you know, given our common uh, identity as Baptists in the U.S., that we can um, find a way to stay in touch. And that's what led to March of 84. A group met in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, for uh, two and a half days, um, and what ended up, um, they a vote was taken to create uh, a Baptist Peace Fellowship, and we added the phrase of North America um, to distinguish between the previous organization among American Baptists, but also to um, is an act of modesty. We didn't want to think of ourselves as the Baptist Peace Fellowship of the whole world. Uh, we wanted to focus on the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. Mexico at the time was in in the Baptist World Alliance um, uh, profile was linked in with North America. It was kind of silly, but that's the way it was at the time. So that's how we started. Um, and, you know, I just said, I'll raise my own salary if you'll give me permission. And that's how we got tracking. Well, let's let's start with, with the, the fundamental question, and then we'll kind of broaden uh, beyond that. 
so what for you is peace? How do you define that? Well, the, as you probably know, the Hebrew term shalom um, is still used to this day in Jewish communities as a way of saying hello or goodbye. It's a, um, uh, a general um, a formal way of saying, I hope your children are well. I hope your crops are growing. Uh, I hope you get enough rainfall. I hope your livestock are healthy. Uh, and it denotes a peace that is more than the absence of conflict. As Dr. King said, uh, there must also be the presence of justice. Um, so um, um, the Hebrew notion of shalom is cosmic. It relates to everything between interpersonal relations to the good of the of the entire globe. And as we've recognized in the last um, couple of decades, that includes creation itself. Um, uh, so peace is the wholeness of God. Shalom is when you're not only relating justly and mercifully to your neighbor, but also walking um, humbly with God uh, to do justice, uh, to seek peace, to walk humbly. In, in Hebraic thought, all, those things are not separated. You cannot do one without the others. Um, and so this sense of being um, a kinship to God uh, generates kinship within creation. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, if we could have, uh, have said several times in, in our work, when my work was with the Baptist Peace Fellowship, um, we covered a long list of particular issues and not just war and peace issues. Um, in fact, I think if we could quantify and measure the amount of tension we gave to individual issues, racism was probably uh, the most prominent um, part of our work, um, in, in, in part because I believe that racism was the original sin of the New Testament church, and racism was the sin of the um, uh, uh, North American religious experience. Um, so um, my understanding of peacemaking is very comprehensive uh, and isn't limited simply to matters of war and peace. Well, and you, you talk in, in um, or on the website uh, for the Baptist Peace Fellowship, uh, uh, talks about uh, resisting the triumvirate of evil. Mm -hmm. uh, racism, as you mentioned, uh, militarism and materialism. Yeah, that's the that's the triumvirate which Dr. King spoke about. That's what that's what really got him in trouble when he came out. His last major address um, before his time in Memphis, when he was assassinated, was a a speech he gave at Riverside Church in New York City when he came out forcefully and pointedly as a, uh, uh, opposing the war in Vietnam. And that just got him into a mess of trouble. Um, he made the connection between domestic oppression uh, and international aggression. And he lost enormous amount of support because of that um, uh, comprehensive notion of peacemaking. Um, so uh, I think I would add to that these days uh, to the triumvirate of a fourth, make it a quartet, would be creation care. Um, the uh, utter 
uh, disregard that the human species has made to the created order. And I began studying this theme in scripture, and I was uh, astounded the number of biblical texts that talk about uh, including all manner of creation in the purview of God's attention and compassion. So, um, Tell us a little more about the specific work that you did then with the Baptist Peace Fellowship. I mean, how did you... How did you address racism and militarism? Oh, uh, well, I published, uh, edited a couple of books for local churches, um, uh, capturing Dr. King's dream. We think of him as a social, a social reformer, but his work came straight out of scripture. Uh, his passion, uh, the way he formed the phrase beloved community was his, um, modernization of the term, um, kingdom of God. Um, and so we did a, a, um, a curriculum for six age groups in local churches to, uh, to appreciate Dr. King's vision. Um, we did a family activities guide book with 33 different kinds of activities that uh, families could do together uh, to pay attention to the issue of racism. Um, do those things still exist? I mean, are those still available? Yeah. Uh, there, uh, I have a, a single copy of each. The last time I looked on the web, at least one of them was still there, and it was like $99. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I, I, you can still find information about them. Um, our, we had a summer conference every year, and our commitment was that uh, uh, we would have half of our outside resource people be people of color. Um, um, we... Um, we helped celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Birmingham movement in in uh, 93 uh, and met at a historically black college there in, in uh, Birmingham. Um, um, I have lots of written resources um, on celebrating Dr. King's birthday, uh, which I'm, in fact, I just had one published today, um, a new piece that I wrote. So, um, a whole range of of um, of things that at uh, one point um, um, uh, our board of directors had people from twelve different Baptist convention backgrounds and five racial ethnic groups: um, uh, Asian American, Indian American, Native American, um, various uh, African American, um, and representatives from Mexico and Puerto Rico. So. So there's a lot of attention giving, given to um, uh, practicing affirmative action, uh, not just because it's a politically correct thing to do, but um, uh, it's one step that we can take in moving toward God's uh, beloved community. Well, and, and you mentioned, uh, you sent me a, a resource about the Naga people. Uh, yeah, you were involved uh, in. tell us a little bit about that. Well, story. that was that was it's a really odd story, um, and um, providential, I think. In '93, that I was I was serving on the Baptist World Alliance Human Rights Commission, and we had a meeting. Uh, the Baptist World Alliance annual uh, board and commission meeting was in uh, Harare, Zimbabwe, and I was asked to do a paper for the Human Rights Commission, and what I did was briefly annotate the lives of Baptists um, 
uh, throughout the 20th century who had been involved in various forms of justice, peace, uh, creation, care, human rights work. And one of the figures that was in my paper that I know a little bit about was a man named um, Longri Al, Longri Al, who was a Naga uh, pastor. Um, if you read that um, background, it, it's a long, very painful history going back to 47, when the British were thrown out of India. Um, the new Indian government promised the Nagas their independence because they were they were a very distinct racial ethnic group. They looked like nothing we think of as Indians. They really looked more uh, close to Tibetans or even uh, Chinese. Um, the Indian government reneged on that agreement. Uh, that started a low-intensity conflict between Indian security forces and uh, the Naga people. Um, the infighting that grew up among the Nagas ended up splitting the party in two and then in three and then in four separate parties. And the animosities between among the Nagas uh, were so severe that they were spent as much time fighting each other as they did fighting the Indian Defense Force. Anyway, there was a Naga a pastor, a seminary professor, at that DWA meeting where I gave that address. And, you know, very few people in the word, world have ever heard about the Nagas. They don't know that story. The fact that the Baptist missionary work there starting in the late 18th century, um, the, the Nagas are predominantly Christian people, as are a number of the other uh, racial ethnic groups in the mountains of Myanmar, um, Burma. Um, anyway, this Naga uh, professor had been doing, um, initiating reconciliation work, trying to get leaders of these four parties to negotiate their differences so they could mediate and negotiate with the Indian government for some new political future. And Wati Ayer was his name. Wati asked me if um, I, he, he said he came to that meeting specifically to ask one of the BWA leaders uh, to play this role. He met many of them and didn't think much about them. And then he came to this meeting where I talked about a Naga leader from the 1960s. And so we met for coffee in the evening, talked much of the night. Long story short, a year and a half later, I made my first trip to Nagaland or to India, I wasn't able to get, uh, you have to have a special pass to get into Nagaland because it was considered a, a closed military zone. But I ended up meeting the, the uh, commander in chief of the largest Naga guerrilla army in a hotel room for two days. We talked about their struggles. Um, and so then after that, that it became a, um, a really significant uh, investment, first of my time, and then we had a part-time employee um, who was also a pastor, ended up uh, taking over responsibility for that uh, mediation work. Um, but it was, uh, as, you, as you saw from the photo uh, I sent, the, uh, uh, the, the, the leadership of one of the Naga armies, uh, complete with their AK-47s, had created this large banner, Thank You Baptist Peace Fellowship. <laughs> uh, which they sent me after the first um, mediation session that actually happened in Atlanta. They wanted to come to the U.S. because they knew about Jimmy Carter. 
Jimmy Carter was their hero. And they wanted to visit the Carter Center uh, as well as the King Center. So we spent four days there with mixed results. Um, and ever since then, it's been a two-step forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. So it's still an ongoing project. I'm no longer involved in that, but it's still a, a struggle there in Northeast India. So what do you think seems to be the ongoing challenges as to why they're not making better progress? It's deeply rooted in very personal histories. Um, at one point, the, the Indian government has been very astute in playing one side against the other. So for a period of time, they'll favor one of those political groups. They'll give them money, influence, uh, resources. Um, and then after a while, they'll move on and they'll start paying special attention to another of the separate groups. And so they have been very skilled at playing these groups off of each other. And for a time, the major two leaders of the, the original Naga um, political uh, organization that also had a military wing well, went into exile because they were wanted. Um, and some other Naga leaders ended up in desperation negotiating a peace settlement with the Indian government without consulting these two leaders that were in exile. Um, and so there was this major internal fight that went on, um, uh, including um, attempting to uh, assassinate each other. Uh, and so it's that deep-rooted, um, like every human institution, people that want to hang on to power um, and are willing to do just about anything to keep themselves in the in the driver's seat. So it's one of those things where uh, a generational change probably will have to happen um, until there is uh, the kind of stability they're looking for. When some of these original revolutionary leaders are dead and gone, then maybe they'll have the capacity to uh, negotiate in good faith. Well, you talked about um, the use of... Um conflict transformation theory. Yeah. Uh, is that what you used in your work with them? That's uh, as we were doing this work is when we first became acquainted with the, the Mennonites at Eastern Mennonite university who were, they were the the Mennonites were the pioneers. Uh, it has grown um, in, in much larger circles and, and in circles that aren't necessarily faith-based. Um, uh, the, the theory and practice basically boils down to um, the theories of justice. Um, most criminal justice institutions um, are on uh, employed retrib retributive justice formats, which is to say when um, uh, wrong is done, you focus on who's to blame and how should they be punished. Uh, restorative justice says when harm is done, you ask, who has been harmed, and who needs to be involved in the healing. So um, it's a profound, it, it sound, may sound kind of subtle, but it's really a profound shift. And um, restorative justice work is kind of the heart of conflict transformation theory and practice. Um, uh, 
one of the hard, uh, uh, one of the um, major themes of conflict transformation theory is um, uh, conflict is always the opportunity to strengthen relationships between people. Um, uh, another one is um, um, conflict is a constituent part of the human condition. We can't avoid conflict. It, it encircles us all the time. If we think of when we engage in a conflict with someone uh, and, and are not overcome with fear of protecting ourselves, there is an opening that we might, in fact, uh, uh, deepen our relationship rather than fracturing it. The people I know who have the longest sustained, um, uh, deeply affectionate relationships are people who've been through hard times together. Uh, they've, they've had some conflicts, and they've found a way to not let fear get in the driver's seat so that they... Um, uh, um, uh, well, you know, the theory behind how handshake, the tradition of handshake originally was created in human history is it was a way of showing a stranger that you had no weapon in your hand. So an open hand... Um, as the launching point for a conversation and possibly a relationship, there's a disarming going on. In fact, that the phrase uh, disarming became very important to me. Um, uh, and I, I talk about disarming of the nations entails disarming of the heart, which is basically a good old fashioned evangelical notion that we really do need to be born from above. There needs to be something profoundly transforming that happens to our insides in order for us to live peaceably and justly in the world. So the disarming of the heart and the disarming of the nation is a has been for decades now a key phrase for me. Well, let's go a little more further into your own resources from our heritage, uh, mm. from our Christian heritage that, that you draw upon uh, to do your peace work. Well, discovering our, my Anabaptist history at, at Union Seminary, uh, I had heard of the Anabaptists in Sunday school, but no one had ever told me that they were pacifists. Um, that was not knowledge in Southern Baptist, traditional Southern Baptist life. And so in, at Union, I began reading um, this history um, and discovering the connections. Um, um, John Smythe, the leader of a group of... Um, dissidents um, from the Anglican community took his little community to uh, uh, Amsterdam when he was being repressed by the British government and ended up uh, signing the confession of faith that the um, uh, Mennonite community there uh, had. So there was, in fact, those two congregations, parts of those two congregations eventually merged. Uh, Thomas Helwes brought um, a few back from that, going back to England and formally founding what is considered the first Baptist congregation. Um, but anyway, studying my Mennonite history, um, um, there was this, you know, this conviction of living the disarmed life and the refusal, not on political grounds, but on theological grounds of wielding the sword in defense of the state. Um, and then I discovered, you know, the first four centuries of Christian history, it was uh, a, a theological requirement 
pacifism was a theological stipulation. Soldiers could not join a church until somewhere in the fourth century. They had to give up their soldiering. Um, so it was considered a matter of faith. Um, so recovering that kind of history and then more deeply, deeper theological reflection to the point where I began to understand the incarnation in Jesus was God's uh, um, uh, transforming, conflict transforming initiative, a uh, disarming. God self disarmed uh, in Jesus. Um, uh, and, and that just leads to thinking about um, how do we live disarmed lives? How do we uh, uh, find a way to remove ourselves from the patterns of behavior um, that always seem to dominate the human community? Um, jealousies and hatreds and ang- angers. Um, that lead um, uh, eventually to uh, outright violence, physical violence, uh, emotional violence. Um, I think of that text in James, book of James, where he talks about the tongue, uh, which he describes as the most hellish, the most hellish uh, part of the human person uh, because of the damage that our language can do, our gossiping can do. So, so, um, Thinking of Christian faith as tutoring, being tutored in a in the disarmed life, uh, uh, in obedience to Jesus, uh, and in reverence for God, um, as the pattern for how reconciliation finally will happen. Well, you talk about um, that your your preference for the conflict transformation theory theory. Uh, is because it puts loving your enemies back at the center. It does, and it also preaches teaches very practical kinds of um, ways to to uh, carry out. Uh, you know, it's uh, I actually think of it as discipleship training. Conflict transformation theory and practice is training in how to be a Christian. The fact is that people who are not Christians can also practice. It can take up these practices. It's not. Um, you're not required to be a person of faith to, to, to engage in this work, but it, it so neatly dovetails with what it means to be a disciplined believer. It's all of a piece that growth, spiritual growth, is the patterned, disciplined, habitual way of learning to behave differently that promotes justice, peace, human rights, ecological um, uh uh, care. Um, so um, that's when I, I first developed this workshop in a, in a, as a three-hour format with a lot of um, interactive um, uh, exercises for, for uh, the group. And it was one man told me afterwards, um, you know, now I, now I know how to practice peace and not just promote it. <laughs> well, yeah, talk about that a little more because you, uh, in, in the Naga document, it mentions, and, and you mentioned in, in your information about your workshop, that peace is something that has to be waged, just like Yes. Uh, Explain that a little more. The Baptist editor, Walker Knight, was editor of uh, the Home Missions magazine of the Southern Baptist Convention for many years, was a mentor, a member of my church, mentored the starting of Seeds and the Baptist Peace Fellowship. He wrote a long a prose poem in December of 1972 
And a key phrase, uh, uh, several phrases from that ended up in Jimmy Carter's speech following the Camp David Accord when Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty um, somewhere in the 70s. I'm not remembering that now. Anyway, a key phrase was uh, peace like war is waged. There is an active peacemaking has usually been associated with withdrawal. You know, if you have conflict, well, you just get out of conflict. You run away. Um, uh, You stop the relationship. Uh, Or it's a a, a, a synonym for passivity. You don't do anything. You just kind of, uh, when something violent's going on, you just uh, don't pay any attention there. And this notion of uh, peacemaking, peace waging, um, um, was another pivotal moment in in my head, and I think in a lot of people's heads, um, I actually created a poster with that poem on it. And in the years since, I have seen it posted on walls on three different continents, uh, which is just stunning. It shows you how potent that idea is um, of peacemaking being a very active vocation and, and not a passive one. We'll kind of go into more detail about what that means. You know, what do you do specifically to wage peace? Oh, um, how do you love your enemies? And I guess is how does that concretely realize itself? Uh, you've probably at one time or another been in, uh, involved in a church that was having a fight of some kind. Um, people disagreeing and uh, with each other, um, a fair bit of animosity. Um, some people just leave the church over it. Uh, Um, the first thing that conflict transformation theory entails is that like Jesus said, or like the text in the new Testament, if you have a dispute with your brother, go to him and talk about it. If you need to take another person with you. So there's an active uh, attempt at reconciliation. It doesn't guarantee good results. Not all conflicts can be, uh, resolved or transformed in our lifetimes. Um, but the, the, the onus is on those of us who believe that because we, because of God's disarming love has caused us to disarm our hearts. And so we cannot be hurt. Even if we're killed, that's not the end. So people who are convinced of this, who are undergone this kind of transformation um, can live life much more free of fear and um, vengeance. Um, you know, friendships, you think of disputes between friends or between neighbors. Um, we had um, a dispute last winter uh, after a big snowfall. I was out uh, uh, shoveling the drive so we can get out and a snowplow had come up and um, piled up in a bunch of snow even after I'd shoveled in our driveways right next to our neighbor's driveway. And I was shoveling um, the snow uh, on our driveway from one side to side. Our neighbor came out and said, uh, stop piling snow on my driveway. And I said, I'm not piling snow on your driveway. I'm piling it on the side of ours and in the space between our two driveways. Well, she said the same thing again. Luckily, um, uh, my wife was the peacemaker in this case. The next day, she went over and had a conversation with our neighbor and explained 
what the situation was. And now we have become friends. We chat a lot. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, how do you raise children to learn to address conflict without picking up a stick and hitting someone? Uh, how do you teach them practices that will uh, mediate conflict, will, will lessen um, uh, some part of my work has been involved in what's called uh, violence reduction strategies, which means that you uh, attempt to lower the heat as the first step uh, in conflict. Or in that workshop outline, I'm, I mentioned peacekeeping, peacemaking. Um, peace building? Peace building, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you think of those, uh, uh, that typology, peacekeeping is like what United Nations troops would do if they were sent into a warring region simply to put barriers between the warring parties. Um, peacemaking uh, is what you do in mediation. Uh, you try to mediate conflict. Um, in fact, conflict transformation theory and practice it builds on the older paradigms of uh, conflict resolution and conflict mediation. Um, so there is, after a conflict breaks out, you basically negotiate. So that's in that sense, peacemaking it can be thought of as is what diplomats do. But then the most um, the, the the third peace building um, is when you establish the institutions, cultural habits, the economic institutions, educational institutions that foster health in a community. So in a sense, you get out in front of conflict. You try to create the, the environment um, to have, you know, if you want to, you know, if our public health system, we now know is shot to hell. Um, dealing with this pandemic, we have, uh, we realize how weak our public health system is, that it just can't handle it. Uh, uh, we uh, People have said this for many years, but no one, has believed it enough to put the budget in for it. So now we know if we can greatly enhance our public health system in the U.S., the next time we have a pandemic, we'll have the capacity to deal with it far better than we do now. So peace building in that sense is, is an active process. It's not a passive one. It's not just negotiating. It's not just separating conflicting parties, but it puts into into place all the elements that are needed for the flourishing of the human and created um, uh, part of of our reality. So, well, why don't we end with uh, some advice? Okay, uh, we've had an interesting week. Well, in our nation, um, relating to uh, the storming of the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reveals uh, the tip of an iceberg uh, about the depths of division yeah. uh, among us in our nation uh, to the point that some are getting militant enough uh, to take up arms yeah. and to um, uh, begin to uh, create violence. Um, I've been reading... Uh, the history of the the oral history of the Daily Show, uh, no. John Stewart, mm -hmm. and uh, 
I remember reading in there somewhere uh, where John said that the difference between the left and the right is that the left formed drum circles and the right formed militia. <laughs> Uh, so what do we do? Uh, you know, how do I apply, uh, in my life, uh, the things that you advocate and teach, uh, in trying to build peace, uh, with those who support Donald Trump, uh, yeah. believe that his election has been stolen uh, and are even uh, beginning to take up arms and uh, get violent. How do we begin to address that? Yeah, it's a. I, I feel traumatized. Um, uh, I've had a hard time writing anything this week, trying to wrap my head around this pain um, and what can be done about it. Um, s- several things. Uh, one, we have, I think we're realizing that we have had this class of white supremacists our entire history. Uh, they have not generally been encouraged to uh, speak out or act out. Uh, they have always been there. Uh, and we're realizing now that systemic racism is part of our national story. And we have to f- face up to the fact Um that our constitution um, uh, permitted slavery. And we, we can't um, r- write that out of our history. Um, we also have a political class um, that has been growing since the Reagan years uh, and an economic system, a uh, system of economic inequality and a political class willing to commit all manner of disinformation and outright lying to stay in power. Um, we can't, we can't simply dismiss that. I find the calls for unity primarily coming from Republicans these days to be uh, disingenuous. Um, uh, before we can find new ground to live together, um, we have to face up to the calamity that has happened to us. And there must be some form of um, accountability. It's going to be a long haul. Uh, We are going to have to nationally, regionally, locally find ways to first hold people accountable for the damage that has been done to our body politic, which will include needing to revive uh, economic policy that does not advantage the rich. Right now we have government uh, of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich. Uh, and we have to face up to that fact. Um, none of us, um, it's kind of like um, uh, one of the reasons uh, Baptist Peace Fellowship, I didn't focus on nuclear weapons, is none of us have nuclear weapons. <laughs> Someone would say, well, I'll give away my nuclear weapon if that'll help. Yeah. So people feel like, how do I address this? I have no leverage. I can write a letter, make a phone call, but that's uh, you know the extent of what I know how to do. So the issue was so far and distant. Um, and in this case, too, the issue is pretty far and distant. It happens to do what, what happens in Washington. Well, we, we, 
we lay the groundwork in our local communities for learning how to recognize, face, and creatively handle conflict in a way that doesn't seek vengeance, in a way that extends mercy, uh, but also is accountable. We can't just uh, wink at evil or, or destruction or violence. Uh, there, there has to be a form of accountability. Uh, but often our attempts at accountability end up uh, uh, becoming forms of vengeance, a bloodlust, uh, that we have been harmed. Uh, who was it in, in Genesis? Uh, Genesis um, Noah's great-great-great-grandson who said, I have been uh, harmed seven times, and now I will deliver harms 70 times seven. So that you get the sense of the escalation uh, of violence uh, that can start in a very small, discreet place, and then f a fuel is put on the fire, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Um, so helping people understand the work of peacemaking, justice-seeking in their personal relations, um, in the way they live. Um, uh, recycling ought to be a a standard part of discipleship training, how we care for creation. We don't throw junk away all the time. We limit our consumptive habits. We learn to live more simply. Um, uh, we uh, support um, those in, in political office who um, uh, share some part of this dream of the beloved community. Um, we contribute to various charitable organizations. Um, uh, we practice peacemaking habits within our own congregations. How do you deal with conflict in a congregation? So on and on, um, all kinds of very practical things that we can do as individuals and as families, as communities of faith in cities and towns. Um, all of this is seeding the ground for what happens in Washington, D.C., or at the United Nations, or any other capital. Uh, so resources for these practical things are on the uh, Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America website? Probably are. I haven't looked at it in a good while. I've really not kept up with them. Um, but um, I know we did, I, when I was there, I did a number of publications, um, uh, 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 topics like how do you preach on peace? And uh, how do you form uh, partner congregations with a congregation in your town made up from primarily of um, uh, people of a different racial ethnic background? We had two large issues in doing that and also forming partnerships with a congregation overseas, a kind of pen pal relationship. Uh, we have a partner congregation in Cuba. Um, uh, I haven't talked at all about U.S.-Cuba relations, which has probably been my premier foreign policy interest since 1987 is when I my first um, Cuban national. Um, so every part of your life is open to interrogation and learning habits of how we live redemptively, uh, how we attempt to confront violence uh, with the knowledge that we will never finish. Um, uh, we won't solve all the problems, not even all of our problems. There's a great statement in the 
Jewish Talmud that says, um, uh, you may not finish your task, but you cannot relinquish it, which is wisdom that I talk about frequently, that we all have tasks to carry on. We will never see the full result of our work. Um, uh, But then again, we are not... um, um, we're not being judged by how successful or unsuccessful we are. We are acting as a, a, a beloved to a lover. Uh, our discipleship is not um, a sense of uh, uh, getting a bigger house in heaven. It's because we have fallen in love with this beatific vision of what the realm of God uh, is like how it is coming toward us, how we can participate in it, even now in bits and pieces. Um, And so thinking of all those um, um, uh, very practical things that are very close at home, and then if you find a commitment that extends your orbit of interest to the region, to the state, to the nation, to somewhere overseas, follow that if you feel called to do it. That's all of my international commitments. Really, be, I, I kind of stumbled across them. <laughs> it, it wasn't that I went looking for something dramatic to do, you know, a happenstance or a providence of, of um, events made me come across something that extended my network further and my interest more developed, more uh, broad, sp- uh, broad spread, uh, more global. Well, I am deeply grateful uh, yeah, for the work do you have done. I'm grateful for the work you're continuing to do. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the wisdom that you have shared with us. Uh, what this, it is. This is uh, hopefully just the first conversation that sure. you and I will have because uh I think I would like to uh, look more deeply uh, with you in the future uh, about um, your work at the church uh, yeah. and, you know, kind of talking about how what you've done uh, it, with the Baptist Peace Fellowship is now extending, as you said, is a, there's a continuity uh, mm-hmm. in that is that has yeah. extended uh, into your work at the church. So Yeah, the Circle of Mercy website has, several years ago, we Formally, after um, went through a process of study lasting three years, and finally formally named ourselves as a peace church. Uh, and that document is on our website. I wrote most of it. Uh, you'll recognize some of the language. Um, uh, and so we we go back to that document from time to time and say, how are we being faithful or unfaithful? to this commitment. It's not a confessional statement in a classic sense, but we put it into words as a way, as a reminder, so that we go go back to it from time to time. Um, And one of the practical things we did as a part of that is establish a Peace Pilgrim Fund, um, which gives uh, grants of up to $500 to our youth who want to undertake what we call boundary crossing experience whether it's across town or across the ocean, where you're going, you know, it's a significant commitment of time and uh, attention that you're going to a place that you don't know about as a, as a disciple, as an advocate of reconciliation. Um, 
So we've had kids, you know, um, uh, travel to several different countries, uh, engage in volunteer work with several different uh, U.S. organizations. And it's a way just to encourage our young people to think about peacemaking and how it affects their own walk with with Jesus. Um, so we did. Some, that's one of the very practical things that came out of our um, uh, peace church statement. And that sounds like wonderful things to talk about. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm eager. I'm eager to co- to continue our conversation. Again, thank you for being thank you, David. Tonight. And uh, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. <laughs> The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. May the words from my mouth speak